You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Man, you can be seated. We're going to have a just time of prayer this morning as we continue to for, in our 40 days of prayer. Uh, I hope that you are, well, continuing in 40 days of prayer. Uh, we're at about day 13, I think, is tomorrow. Uh, I just want to read a, an excerpt out of this book. Um, and I think this connects in well with what we're going to talk about today. So just bear with me for a little bit, and I want you to listen to some of the key points that this author brings forward in this particular devotional. He says, where you point the finger of blame will always inform you where change needs to take place. Someone once said that you never see a person in a protest carrying a sign with an arrow pointing downward and with the words, I am the problem, painted on it. One of the most significant aspects of the deceitfulness of sin is our ability to swindle ourselves into thinking that we are seldom at fault. And because we are good at convincing ourselves that we are not at fault, we also become skilled at causing ourselves to feel good about thoughts, desires, words, and actions that God says are not good. One of the ways that we tend to trouble our own trouble is our ability to convince ourselves that our sin is not so sinful after all. When you convince yourself that your sin is not so sinful after all, you also convince yourself that you don't need God's amazing, rescuing, forgiving, and transforming grace. Anyone who argues against his own need of grace is in grave spiritual danger. Listen to what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. When you do what is wrong, you either look for someone to blame or you admit blame and run in humility and grief to your Redeemer. We are tempted to believe that our greatest problems in life exist outside of us. It's our husband or wife. It's that nasty neighbor. It's our children. It's our boss or coworkers. It's the way that women dress. It's the materialistic culture. It's our church. And if you have nothing else to blame, it's the dog's fault. This not only keeps you from seeking the grace and getting the help you need, but it argues against what God says is true about you. It either places, it either places you in a spiritually debilitating standoff with your Redeemer. Either he is a liar or you are. Let that settle in for just a moment. Either God, the creator of the universe, is a liar or you are. Self-deception never goes anywhere good. It never produces fruit in your life or in your relationship with God or others. Humble, honest, specific, heartfelt confession is the doorway to peace within yourself, peace with God, peace with your neighbor, and a life of ongoing growth and fruitfulness. Where do you tend to point the finger of blame? The gospel forces you to admit that your biggest problems in life exist inside of you and not outside of you. And because this is true, you need more than situational, relational, or location change. Father in heaven, we bow our heads in this moment to worship you, to honor you, to praise you, to thank you. But Father, also to look inwardly. But Father, in prayer, something amazing and beautiful happens. We see you high and lifted up. And in that same moment, we see our own failures and our own brokenness. That in fact, Lord, my biggest problem is me. It's not outside of me. And Father, for every follower of Christ in this room, 
their biggest struggle lies with inside of them. Father, we, we love to make ourselves out as victims, victims of the culture, victims of our employers, victims of society. But Father, the fact is, we're not victims at all. We are the guilty. And Father, we are the ones who've made the mistakes. We are the ones who've fallen short of your glory. We are the ones who not only have said wrong things, but we have thought wrong things. Father, not only have we lied to ourselves, but we have lied to others. Not only have we pushed others down, we have exalted ourselves, our egos get out of control. And Father, the, the things that come out of our mouth is a reflection of the things that are in our heart. There are things that we've viewed over the last few weeks, online or otherwise, that is impure. There are things that we have said to other people that were said in, in anger or hate that, Father, we, we need to confess before you this morning. Father, we don't need to look to our neighbor to the left or right, but we need to look inwardly. Father, what I was told so many years ago that every time I point a finger at someone else, there's four pointing back to me, there is, there's a simple truth to that. So, Father, this morning, not only do we acknowledge, Father, that, that there are things inside of our life that we need you to clean up, but, Father, at the same time, we realize that we can't fix them on our own. For some, Father, this has been a problem for a very long time. It's now become a habit. And Father, in this moment, not only have you revealed to each one of us what those issues are, but now, Father, we confess that we have no power to get it out of our life. So we cast ourselves upon your power. We, we, we don't make excuses. We acknowledge that we have sin in our life. We have things in our life that is not honoring you. And Father, we, we reach out to you for help. Father, forgive us and cleanse us through your blood. Set us free from the bondage of this, this, this act we keep repeating and justifying. Father, set us free from this cycle of sin. Set us free from minimizing it, from justifying it. Father, help us to call it what it is, to own it, and then seek your forgiveness of it. Father, the world cannot fix this. Only you can. So, Father, I pray that uh, as we look back across our life these last few weeks or months, that we would see that every time we point that finger, it's revealing something on the inside of us that we need your help with. Father, we love you. Got us in your word this morning. We need it. We need your help to walk through this difficult text. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, to see you and see our world with new perspective. Oh, we love you. We thank you for all you've given us this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're able and willing, would you please stand as we read God's word in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. 
No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and for the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. You can be seated, and thank you very much. I appreciate it. Several years ago, I had a, a close friend that um, was healthy, um, you know, took good care of himself, and uh, went for his yearly physical. And he went to the physical thinking that, you know, there, there wasn't anything wrong with him, and they do all the blood work and, you know, do the usual things when it comes to uh, that yearly physical that you have to endure as well. And to his surprise, something came back in his blood work. And his doctor seemed rather concerned about it. So he, he has a conversation with my friend to say, look, you, you need to, uh, I need to refer you out to a, a specialist and, and we need to get some things checked out because there's things in your blood work that, that uh, well, that, that point to something that you need to get checked out. Now, to his surprise, he felt fine. There was no, he had no health problems, no issues. There was nothing going on with him. He didn't feel bad. He didn't go to the doctor because he felt bad. So he's as surprised as anyone is that there's something in his blood work. So then he takes the next step. He goes to the specialist, and the specialist does a whole bunch more tests. And they, they come back, and they, they tell my friend that, that he has a condition. He has a disease that's rather serious and that, that he must take this medication. And that, quite frankly, he will be on this medication for the rest of his life to deal with this particular condition. Now, that was even more shocking with, with the fact that, again, my friend is healthy, uh, was doing everything in life that he, that he wanted to do, and had no issues with his health whatsoever. So it was very surprising for him, for an expert to sit across from him and say, not only are you sick, but you have to take this medication. So he began taking the medication, and I remember him telling me this, uh, and again, this has been some years ago, I remember him telling me this, he said, you know what, if the doctors would leave me alone, I'd feel a lot better. He said, I wasn't even feeling bad until I got the diagnosis, and then with all these tests, and now this medication that I'm taking, I feel the worst I've ever felt in my life, but yet they're telling me that I've got to take this for the rest of my life? What we're going to see today is that at this point in the tribulation, the world thinks everything's okay. As a matter of fact, the world thinks that life has never been any better than it is at this point. Yes, they've had to go through some, some pretty harsh judgments. Yes, there's been things that happened on this planet that they couldn't explain. But now they have the leader of all leaders. And this particular leader, the Antichrist that we looked at last week, this leader seems to have all the answers to all their questions. And not only that, he can work miracles. He can die. and he, Apparently through his own strength come back to life. Our world is filled with experts, and sometimes those experts tell you, hey, you're sick, you don't even know it, you don't even feel it, but you're sick. And what's amazing is, is most of the time, we just take the expert's opinion at face value, because that's what they're paid to do, right? They, they went to school, the doctor went to school, the specialist specializes in this particular medicine, he's looked at all of the evidence, he's looked at my blood work, he's looked at my tests, and he says that I have this, and we just accept that. And we begin to take the medicine, or we have the surgery, and we move on with our life. Well, the experts, when they make claims, we, we pay attention to them, even though everything inside of us says something different. I want to I share with you something an expert said that I think helps us to clarify what we're going to look at at chapter 14. Turn over to Matthew 7. 
Matthew chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe Jesus to be an expert. Why? Because he's God with flesh on. So if there's ever been an expert in real space and time, it is Jesus Christ the righteous. A man who did not sin, a man who taught like no one else taught and ultimately dies and resurrects three days later. So, so Jesus Christ being the expert on all things eternal, on all things concerning God, the Bible says that Jesus is the exact image of God. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that, that Jesus is basically the word, the, the deity with flesh on. So he is the expert. Jesus even said that he is the way the truth, and the life. So let's listen to what this expert says about life. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Rather perplexing a little bit. Jesus in this greatest sermon that has ever been preached, as he's wrapping it up, looks at the disciples and say, guys, you need to understand something. There are only two paths. He said the first path is wide. It is a huge wide corridor. And there are a whole lot of people walking this path. As a matter of fact, every human being that's born is born onto this wide path. It is filled with people. And they are all walking down this path, and life is easy. And that's one of the attractive things about the wide path. It really requires nothing of you. And when you look around, everyone else is walking the same path. Well, if they're walking it and it's working for them, then it must work for me. So what Jesus says is there's this wide path that requires nothing of you. You're born onto it, and it requires very little of you, very little sacrifice. Everyone will pat you on the back. Everyone's happy on this path. But Jesus says that path leads to destruction. How could it? Everybody's so happy. How could it be wrong when so many people are traveling this path? How, how could it be that the majority of the world who has rejected Christ or never even heard the name of Christ, how could so many people be wrong? Jesus, the expert, says there's another path. It's a narrow path. It's not an easy path. And he says on this path, there's few people walking on it. The way he describes this path is it's not an easy path to walk. It's not a path that is conducive to a, a comfortable life. Jesus says there's only two paths. And every single human being is on one of those two paths. So that's the expert speaking. That's, that's the God man who speaks so now let's go back to Revelation 14 and let's look at how these paths end up. Chapter 14 is a preview of what's coming. So we've been in this long interlude now in, in Revelation. We, we were at one point, it was like judgment after judgment after judgment. It was the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and then everything just kind of slowed down. And we've been looking at various aspects of the tribulation. Last week we looked at the, the unholy trinity, the, the idea that Satan is going to uh, make a copy or a phony of the Trinity. He's going to have himself as God. He's going to have this Antichrist that, that rises from humanity. He's going to take the position of the, of the Son. And, and then there's this third or this second beast that is, 
that rises up, and he's going to take the role of the Holy Spirit. And so what you have here is you have this phony Satan who's taking the position of God, a phony Christ, we know to be the Antichrist, and, and this phony prophet who's going to kind of take the role of, of Holy Spirit. So there you have an unholy trinity. This beast, the Antichrist, is going to mimic the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when he does, and I believe it's going to be broadcast all over the world, with the technology that we have in place today, you can see it live as it's happening. And somehow, some way, this Antichrist is going to be, well, he's going to be killed. The Bible says by a sword. And that he's going to die. There's not going to be any doubt that, that the Antichrist has died. And then he's going to come back to life. And you can just imagine that people are going to replay this video over and over. They're going to share it and share it. The whole world is going to see this. And for those who had any doubt about him, well, they're going to fall at his feet and they're going to worship. The chapter 13 says that they marvel. They worship the Antichrist. The false prophet is going to do works and signs, and he's going to point people to worship the Antichrist. In chapter 13, we see that the Satan, that Satan has given the Antichrist his throne, his power, and his authority. And the world is going to swallow this hook, line, and sinker. In chapter 14, we begin to see what we've been anticipating all, well, at least I've been anticipating all through this book. When is Jesus going to rule? When is he going to, when is he going to put all rebellion down? Well, in chapter 14, we start to get a little preview of what's happening and what's going to happen in the remainder of the book. In chapter 14, we're going to see the beginnings of Jesus exerting his authority over this planet personally. These two paths that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, there's only two. There is no middle ground. And, and everyone in this room and everyone watching online, you're walking one of these two paths. This morning, I want to show you where those two paths lead. Because in chapter 14, we get a clear understanding of where the two paths lead. One will lead to everlasting joy, and one will lead to everlasting destruction. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Anytime you see uh, something chapter to chapter where there is a contrast with the chapter before it, we need to pay attention to that. What happened in the previous chapter? Well, in the previous chapter, people are lining up to worship the Antichrist. And as they're doing that, they are going to be required, for those who worship him, they're going to be required to take a mark in their hand or on their forehead. Basically, they are going to commit their lives to the Antichrist. And in chapter 14, what do we see? We see 144,000. And by the way, this is the same 144,000 that we saw in chapter 7. These are Jewish believers. These are Jewish people who have a Jewish background. It says in chapter 7 that 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes are selected by God, set apart by God, and they're going to be witnesses of God in the world. And, I, and here we are at chapter 14, I believe it to be the same 144,000. This 144,000, notice this, have the name of Jesus and God the Father written on their foreheads. So in contrast to what we see in chapter 13, those who are lining up to worship, in essence, Satan and his Antichrist, on the other side, we have 144,000 who've taken a mark in their forehead of the name of Jesus and the Father in their forehead. So we have two roads, two paths. One that's going to lead to destruction, one that leads to everlasting life. 
Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of the loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of the harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and the four living creatures and, the four, and before the elders. And no one could learn this song except the 144,000. So what happens? We have Jesus the Lamb, and he is at Mount Zion. Now he is there in Jerusalem at this time in our future. He's there, and with him are these 144,000 witnesses that have been proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the truth during the tribulation period of time. Now at this point, worship breaks out in heaven. And the worship in heaven spills over to Mount Zion and can be heard. And what is happening in heaven is there is worship that breaks out. The 144,000 begin to sing a song that has been written specifically for them. They have their own song that no one else can sing. Why is that? It's because these 144,000 have been set apart by God for a very specific purpose during this tribulation time. And we're going to see in just a moment how faithful they've been to that call. But don't fret because every single person that's been redeemed by Christ, we have a song to sing that only we get to sing. We saw that in Revelation 5. It talks about the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And we worship along with the elders and the beasts in heaven of, of Jesus Christ who redeemed us and shed his blood that we may be made free. So the 144,000 begin to sing along in unison with heaven in this beautiful song that John hears. Notice this, verse 4. It is these, the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It is these who've been redeemed from mankind. And it is these who've no lie was found in their mouth and they were blameless. So now we get a little bit of insight into this 444,000, what God asked them to do. He asked them to not become intimate with women, to, keep, to abstain sexually. But not only that, he says that they were called to live a life before the people on this earth, separate from the sexual immorality that is happening. Now get this. Here we have another contrast. The Antichrist and his kingdom is going to be known for rampant sexual immorality. I told you this last week. As we get further into the, des the descriptions of Babylon, Babylon meaning this great empire that the Antichrist is leading, there's going to be a time during the tribulation period where all these countries are going to lay down their sovereignty and are going to make this man their king. And he is going to rule the earth. We've not seen a worldwide ruler well, at all in our history, as far as our lives. But if we go back in history, we can find lots of leaders who tried to conquer the world. Some of them came rather close. But he's going to be able to do it because he has the power of Satan and his throne and his authority. And these nations are going to lay down their sovereignty and give it to this kingdom. And part of this kingdom is going to be that, that all restraints are going to be cast off. Any kind of restraint in society that is part of the old part of religion, the old part of, of how culture operated, all of that is going to be cast aside. Are we not seeing that today? Are we not seeing a, a dramatic move towards a society that cast off any kind of restraints, when it, especially considering sexuality? That's where we are and that's where we're moving. Under the leadership of the Antichrist, it'll be, well, on steroids, quite frankly. And right in the middle of this chaos is 144,000 men who are living faithfully to their God. 144,000 who are not lying. 144,000 who are honest. 144,000 who are living for Christ. What a contrast we're going to have. What an incredible moment that God has these witnesses in the world. 
And we know that there are going to be people who put their faith in Jesus during this time of brokenness and chaos. This leads us to a, a real issue that we have to address today. And that while we've not been called as followers of Jesus to abstain from sexuality, we are told that in the Bible that within the confines of marriage, it's beautiful and it's a blessing that God has given us. But nonetheless, all through the New Testament, we are, we are told over and over again that we are to, to stay away from the sexual immorality that this world offers. And not only that, that we are to be people who are blameless. We are to live out our lives with integrity and character. And in essence, what we are to do is to be a contrast to the world. Just as much as this 144,000 is going to be a contrast to the chaos that is happening in that world, we are to be a contrast even today. That your life is to look different in the way you live, the words you use, the integrity that you have. Uh, we've been walking uh, through God's Word with a, a men's group on uh, Sunday evenings, and we've been talking about how our work is worship. And we've been talking about how that, that w- the way we act at work, the way we, the way we do our jobs speaks to the reality of who we are in Christ. That we are not to live our faith in isolation. That we are to live our faith in a way that the world can say, you know what, I don't know what it is about him or her. I don't know exactly what it is. I can't put my finger on But there's something different about him. There's something different about her. Things don't seem to bother her as much. It seems as though they're living for a, for a deeper purpose or a different meaning in life than what I've been able to figure out. Follower of Jesus, hear me well. Your life has to contrast with the world around you. When you surrendered to Christ and you became a brand new person, the reality is that you're not who you used to be. And that you're never been, you've never been called to acquiesce to what the world says is your standards. You have a different view on life. You also know that you're going to be held accountable for everything you do in this life. So just as much as this 144,000 is a contrast to this broken world, so are you. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. Starting at verse 6, we're going to have six angels that are revealed that reveal something different about what John is meant to write down. This angel's flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is the only time in Scripture where we read that an angel is given the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Nowhere else. And the reason that is, is because God's people have been called to proclaim the gospel. We've been given the great commission. As followers of Jesus, we are on a mission together, and that is to proclaim the goodness and grace that we have found in Christ. But here, oddly as it is, this angel has been sent to proclaim the gospel to a world that is in rebellion. Now, why is this happening? Well, all through the book of Revelation, we've seen these moments where God has extended grace one more time to the earth. It's almost as though God says, hey guys, you've got one more chance. Judgment is coming. And I believe this is that moment. This angel is proclaiming the gospel to all the people of the earth. I'm not sure how he's doing it. What we see in the text is that he's flying at a high level somewhere in the sky. He's, he's proclaiming. I don't know if this is some kind of miraculous event where he is audibly proclaiming the gospel. That's what it appears to be. And notice what he says, verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel is saying, God is both judge and creator. And earth, 
All those who are lining up to worship this man called the Antichrist, all of you who are bowing down to the culture, all of you who are saying that he is God, you might want to pay attention here that there is a creator and there is a judge and you will stand before him and you will give an account. That yes, God is altogether loving. Yes, God is full of grace and mercy, but this same God is also a God of judgment. And this angel is proclaiming to the earth in this moment of chaos when everyone is lining up to worship this man, the angel cries out, you might want to wait, you might want to pause, you might want to think about the narrow path. Because the path you're on is wide and everybody's getting in line. And it leads to destruction. Fear God and give him glory. Verse 8, another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. This, this phrase, Babylon, we're going to see that more and more as we move deeper into the book. Babylon is the phrase that is used to represent this kingdom on earth that this Antichrist being empowered by Satan has been able to unify. So we have a one world government. I believe we will have a one world currency. I believe we will have a unification across religions and cultures and barriers and boundaries unlike anything the world has ever seen. And it's all going to be because everyone is proclaiming this leader to be God himself, God among us, the Antichrist, this great leader who's been able to pull off what no other leader has ever been able to do. And the Bible describes his kingdom as Babylon, which is... Rather interesting, when you go back in the Old Testament, what do you find? You find Babylon as the example of everything opposite of what is right and holy. So here we have again a a system, an empire with a king empowered by Satan that the Bible refers to as Babylon, and right here we get a preview. And it's as though the angel is saying to all those on the earth who are contemplating, should I worship the beast? Should I worship this guy? This angel steps forward and says, look, you think everything's going okay? You're getting ready. You're you're able to participate in whatever you want to as far as sexual immorality. You're able to just engage in whatever you want to do, and the world thinks everything is okay. The world thinks it's the greatest it's ever been. The world thinks that we finally casted off religion. We finally casted off all those old religions, and now we get to live for ourselves and fulfill what we want to do. And we have a guy leading us who could die and come back to life. They think everything is the best it's ever been. We have unity. We have one government. And everybody's going to line up and just talk about how great it is. This angel steps forward and says, hey, you know that empire that you're trusting in? This this empire that that is Babylon? Let me me tell you what's going to happen. It's going to fall, and it's going to fall drastically. When we get further into the book, you're going to find out with what it's an incredible moment in the book of Revelation of just how final the fall of this city is going to be. It's incredible. We have an entire chapter dedicated to the fall of this empire. We're going to look at it in the weeks ahead. For now, the angel has given us a preview saying, Babylon, fallen, fallen. Don't put your trust there. Don't think just because everything's going okay that everything is okay. Notice what else, the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. There are times when you're reading the Bible that the way the words are put together on the page should make you stop and pause. There are phrases in the New Testament that are scary. 
I'm talking deeply frightening. This is one of them. The verses I'm getting ready to, the ones I just read and the ones I'm getting ready to read to you are some of the most frightening verses in the entire New Testament. This angel says that for those who've received that mark, remember, those who've lined up to worship the beast, they've received a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. They have declared their allegiance to their God. Remember, two paths, a wide path and a narrow path. Those who've taken that mark have declared their allegiance to the wide path. And in doing so, they are going to receive or experience the wine of God's wrath poured full strength. There is Old Testament imagery here that we need to, that we need to unpack. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet writes about God's wrath, and he, he gives the imagery of a large goblet filled to the top of the wine. And that God's wrath is like that wine being sloshed out of that cup and that in Israel, back in Isaiah's day, there would be times where Israel would experience the judgment of God and Isaiah would say it's like God's wrath is spilling over the cup onto his people. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, Jesus is right before being arrested and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane, that word means olive press. So Jesus has gone there with his men and he's taken three of his closest and they've gone farther into this olive grove and he says to his three men, he says, you stay here and pray. I'm going to go a little further and I'm going to pray. He goes into this olive grove and he begins to pray, call out to God. And do you remember what he said? He said, God, if it be possible, could this cup pass by me? Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that? What is it about a cup that Jesus didn't want to drink from? It's because Jesus is using the same imagery that Isaiah used that John is writing here of this, this idea that, that God's wrath is held in a cup and it's going to be poured out. And you've got to understand that for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is, he is praying this prayer, that if it be possible, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way that, that redemption can happen without me having to go to that cross, then so be it. But then he says, not my will be done, but yours be done. And as he's praying that, as he's under such pressure, such agony, the Bible records that he is sweating drops of blood, that the capillaries in his skin were bursting and blood was coming out of his body because of the pressure that he was under. And why was he under pressure? Because him being the God-man, him being part of the Godhead Trinity, he knows exactly in that moment what God's wrath is going to be like more than anyone else, more than the prophets. And Jesus knows that he's going to become sin while on that cross. And God is going to pour out his full wrath upon the innocent son for our sake. Here, we see it in a different light. That same wrath is going to be poured out upon those who've rejected God and are now worshiping this leader. Notice what he says. He says, it will be poured in full strength into the cup of his anger. And the result will be is all those who've rejected and rebelled, all those who've rejected all the opportunities that God has given them, who, the, the ones who have rejected that God has poured out judgment, that there are miracles that have happened right in front of their eyes and they've rejected it. For all who have rejected it, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night 
these worshipers of the beast and his image who receives the mark of its name. Down through the years, there have been countless books that have been written by experts who, who will tell us that all the references that we see in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, that refer to a place of torment such as hell are not real, that we're misunderstanding those, those passages that some would say, some experts would tell us that the, the, the God that we know, the God that is revealed in the Bible, that he is so much love and he is so much grace and mercy that there is no way that this holy, loving God could take a human being who only lives 60 or 70 or 80 or maybe 100 years and, and, and take that person and cast them into a place where they're going to be burning forever and yet never burn up. So, so some of them postulate and say, there is no hell at all. There's, there's really no place of torment, and we really need to stop talking about that. That's what some of them say. Others would say, well, yeah, there is a place where you'll be separated for a time, but then because we are all God's children, at some point you'll have another opportunity to get right with God, and then eventually we are all going to be gathered into God's heaven and into his kingdom regardless of what we've ever done. And I want to be clear here. As clear as I can be. Everything I just said in the last 45 seconds about those two possibilities are absolute, positively lies. What would Satan have you to do? He would love for you to believe that there's really no place that God would ever judge you. Satan would love for you to believe the lie that there's never going to be any accountability for the choices you've made in this life. Satan would love for you to believe the lie that, that you're never going to be held accountable for not only what you've thought, but what you've done. That somehow God's just going to give you a wink and a hug, and a pat on the back, and say, well, I know you're a bad guy, but come on in anyway. The idea that, that no matter how you live, that we're all going to end up in this place of utopia, that we're, we're all going to grab arms and sing kumbaya. The fact of the matter is, is there are two paths, and one leads to life, and one leads to destruction, and every person in this room is on one of those two roads. Don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you what the expert said. And the expert is very clear on this, folks. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taught more about this place than he did heaven. The Apostle Paul, John, Peter, all talk about the reality of a place right now that people are suffering in. And whether you believe me or not, there's going to be a day in your life you're going to have to wrestle with this. I pray, my prayer for you is, is that it doesn't come to that moment where you haven't had a thing to do with the faith of Jesus Christ, you haven't had anything to do with the Bible your whole life, you haven't had anything to do with faith your entire life, and then all of a sudden, in that moment, when you're at your end of the road of your life, all of a sudden now, things of faith become important. When you've rejected him your entire life. Can God save someone in that moment? Yeah, I've seen it happen. But why in the world would you waste your whole life? And this life that God has for you, in his kingdom, why would you waste all of that and live a lie and live with no purpose and live in a kingdom that's going to ultimately fail? Why would you do that? Notice this, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. If you underline in your Bible, that would be an awesome place to underline. Why? Because we as believers in Christ need to be reminded of just as much that heaven is real and is forever. Hell is just as real and just as forever. And God didn't send a single person there. 
You chose it. You rejected him. You were born onto the wide path. Given an opportunity to come off of it and walk the narrow path, but because of your ego, your pride, or your desire for the things of the world, you rejected it. So no, God didn't put anybody there. Everyone who's there is there by choice. The smoke rises forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. You You know, I know that there is plenty of metal music out there because I used to be a metal music fan back years ago, and I know there are plenty of metal bands who would say to you in the lyrics of their song, let's go to hell because that's a big party. They, they would say, and we, we sing the lyrics right along with them that, that hell is going to be some great big party. We're all going to be friends and we're all going to just party for eternity. Two paths. One leads to destruction, one leads to life. There is no party in that place. There is suffering without end. Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and that story is, again, a set of very scary passages. And there we have the one who is in torment, and he's begging that someone would get him out. What we see in this text is a prelude to what's happening in the future. Look at verse 12. He says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is not John saying, hey, by the way, if you work really hard and, and, and you be a good person, then you'll make it. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will endure. That good work that Christ has begun in you, he will complete. John is reminding us here that we are to endure the persecution we are to endure because we are followers of Christ. We don't endure to get salvation. We endure because of salvation and what Christ has done in our life. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die. Have you ever read a more strange verse anywhere? Blessed are the dead? Well, if you only stop with blessed are the dead, then you've got a problem. But if you read on, it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. There's a narrow path that leads to life and rest and peace. There is a wide path that leads to destruction, and there are many who are on it. Are you? In verse 14, we get introduced to something that we're going to go deeper in in the chapters ahead. We get a kind of a preview here. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Anywhere we see a sickle in the Bible, but whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, it's talking about judgment. It's talking about a great harvest that is going to happen. And a sickle is this long tool with a long blade on it, and you would use it to cut off the stalks of grain or to remove clusters of grapes from the vine. And here, John uses this illustration, or he uses this, this uh, picture to point towards that all things are culminating in a great judgment and a great final moment. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come. What we're seeing here is the loud proclamation that all that has been preached and proclaimed for thousands of years is about to come to fruition. For all those pastors and small group leaders who stood before their groups of people and say that God's judgment is coming, 
that the day, the day here on earth is like a thousand years in heaven, a thousand years in heaven is like a day here, that it doesn't matter how much time has went, that there's a day coming where God is going to bring all things to fruition and to final completion under his sovereign grace. That time has come. And this one, the Son of Man, Jesus, on a white cloud, he is the one who will bring about this final, final end. Verse 17, another angel came out from the temple. He too had a sharp sickle. The other angels came from the altar, and the altar has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. In other words, the ripe the rightness of this world speaks to just how far the rebellion has went, just how far in opposition these people have went against God. And what's going to happen, as we will see in future chapters, is that the Antichrist will gather all of his people together, and they will stage a war against God and against the Lamb, and they will gather for this great battle and here in chapter 14, we get just a little bit of a preview. Notice here it says, verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest, grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of God's wrath. So we have this imagery of, of all those who have rebelled and stand against God are going to be gathered together and they're going to be put in a winepress. It would be better for us to describe this more as a slaughter than a war. There's not going to be a war. There's not going to be a battle. There's not even going to be any resistance because Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to wipe out every single enemy of the cross. We will see that later. We get a preview of it here. Notice what it says. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the rhyme press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or 184 miles. What is John seeing here? We're going to get in the chapters ahead, we're going to get to this place where there is this great battle that is going to be drawn up. Again, calling it a battle is really not even the right term. But for, for now, the Antichrist is going to draw all of his nations and all of his war machine together. And they're going to come together in a very specific place. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. You can look at it on a map. It's there today. It's right there in the middle of the Holy Land. It stretches from the Jordan River, which is 60, this particular place where this valley starts, is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And there's a mountain range on both sides of this valley. And this valley stretches from the, from the east of the Jordan River all the way to the ocean in the west. And this valley is 184 miles long. And in some places... 20, 30, 40, even 50 miles wide. This particular strip of land has been a, a controversial land for many years all through history that many, an army, many of a military has seen this strip of land as strategic. That if you're a general and you want to take the land of Jerusalem and you want to take the lands to the north or to the south and you want to take the lands to the north and you want to take the lands to the east, the best place for you to gather is in the Valley of Jezreel. On one of those mountains is a city called Megiddo. It's from this we get this battle of Armageddon. And what's going to happen, and we'll see this in the weeks ahead, the Antichrist is going to gather there, and he is going to mock Jesus Christ. He is going to mock the creator of this universe, and he is going to ask for something he will regret that he ever asked for. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. But for now, this battle, this bloodbath that is coming, it says that the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. Now, I, 
I have wrestled with that term. I have wrestled with that concept for years. And the reason I wrestled with it is because we're talking about a valley here that's 184 miles long, 20, 30 miles wide. And it seems to indicate here, and what we'll see in the future in another chapter, is that it seems to indicate that this is going to be such a slaughter, there's going to be so much blood, that the blood is going to be five foot deep. When we talk about the horse's bridle, we're talking about five foot. For those of you who are in the horses, that's what I was able to find out. Maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. But in my research, I'm trying to think, okay, what is a horse's bridle? How deep are we talking here? And in my mind, I could not figure out how there could be that much blood. So you know me, I went deeper into my research. How much blood is in the human body? How much blood would that be in cubic feet of blood in 184 miles? And I, the math was astronomically high. So I had to come back to what is John actually saying here? And I think what he's saying and what we'll see in the future is he's talking about there's so much blood that it's splattering up as high on the horse's bridle as five feet high. We've actually had a, an incident in history that comes very close to that, and it happened in Jerusalem. In 70 AD, the Romans come into the city of Jerusalem and destroy the city. And there was a general there by the name of Titus, and Titus slaughtered numbers of people, numbers of Jews, many people, children, women, adults, they destroyed the temple. Jesus predicted that this would happen. He said that the temple would be torn down, the stones would be destroyed and thrown down from each other. In 70 AD it happened, and we have a, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus writes about what happened during this siege in 70 AD. And this is what he described. He said that not only did they set the temple on fire, but they set the homes on fire. But they had slaughtered so many people, so many Jewish people had been slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem that the streets ran with blood, and the blood is what put out the fires that were burning. That much blood. So we have historical events that come kind of close to this, but make no mistake about it, what is happening here is beyond anything that has ever happened in history. The wine press, the cup of God's wrath, all point to a crushing defeat where all those who position themselves against God will fall. As I was reading this, I was thinking about how in the world do we apply chapter 14? What, what, do we, what do we walk out of here with? And thinking about this bloodbath that we're introduced to in chapter 14, there's two things I want you to consider. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, Chapter 14 and the other chapters we have looked at compel you to start talking about the Jesus you claim to follow. There is no other way that we, can, that we can look at a chapter like this and come away with the understanding that if we are followers of Jesus, we are far too silent about the love and the grace that we found in him. We are far too silent about what has changed our life, what the love of our life is. We are, we are far too quiet about that. Years ago, before I came here, I hadn't been a pastor long, and I had a, had a brother um, who really was into studying Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. And he came to a conclusion about how to interpret this book that was very different from my own. And while I love this brother and still do, I hadn't seen him in years, he was so passionate about his viewpoints on Revelation that he took it as a mission upon himself to go correct everyone who had a different view than he had. Now, when I say view, I'm talking about 
the timeline and all these things about what we read in Revelation. Now, I know you know there's been countless books written, but he took a particular position that I didn't think was taught by Scripture at all, and he invites me out to lunch one day, and I know why. He wants to correct my faulty viewpoint on how to view the book and how to view the teachings. So he, he takes me out for lunch one day, and he brings in a three-ring binder that's about that thick, and it's got tabs, and it's got bar. I mean, he... He is absolutely consumed with this particular position on Revelation. And his goal that day is to convince me to abandon my viewpoint and, and to, uh, to adopt his. So we sat down for lunch, and I mean, he, he is just, it's like, a, it's like trying to take a sip of water out of an open fire hydrant. I mean, it's just coming fast and hard. And I'm just sitting there eating my lunch, and I'm trying, as I'm eating, I'm trying to think, Lord, what am I going to say in response to this? Because number one, I'm not going to argue with him. Number two, I'm not going to convince him of anything different. He's pretty well, he's pretty well said in what he's doing. So, Lord, I need you to give me a word for this brother because I don't know what to say. So after about an hour of continuous talking from the other side of the table, I finally get a word in edgewise. And this is, this is what I said. This was just the Lord gave, it, gave this to me in that moment. I asked him, I said, brother, I said, how many people have you talked to about this? He said, oh, I, he said, I've talked to, he said, I think he said he talked to 13 pastors by that point. He had talked to all of his family. He, he had talked to his coworkers. I mean, he was just all in. And, and again, what he's, what he's all in on is, is the events in Revelation. And he said, I think I've got, you know, several more I'm going to talk to. And then I asked this question. I said, brother, during that same time frame of the last six months, how many people, how many lost people have you shared the gospel with? You know what his answer was? None. I said, brother, you and I agree that Jesus is coming back, right? Regardless of the details of how we get there, Jesus is coming back. Do we agree on that? Yes, we agree. I said, do you agree that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Okay, then, then how we get to when Jesus returns is not as important as the person sitting across from you who's walking the wide path on their way to this hell that you say you believe in, and yet the gospel's not coming up. Do you see a problem there? Folks, let me tell you, let me tell you something very clear here. If all we do in this series on Revelation, if all that happens is you gain some more information about Revelation, I have failed. And you have failed. If all we do is walk out of this building and go, oh, wow, that was really cool about the 144,000. I didn't know who the 144,000 were. I didn't know if they were Jewish believers or Christian believers. If that doesn't translate into telling that person out there that you work with who's lost and on their way to a literal hell, if it doesn't translate in talking to them, we have failed. This Revelation study is not about getting smarter about the book of Revelation. It's about breaking our heart about a literal hell that people are going into. And you have found the truth and you have found God's grace. Why in the world are we so quiet about it? And secondly, there's only two paths. You're on one of them. And maybe you're on the wide path. My job this morning is not to scare you. My job is to sober you up. My job is to point to where this leads. That when Jesus says the wide path leads to destruction, what does he mean? He means this eternal torment of fire, no rest, day and night, and the smoke rises. Just as much as heaven is real and eternal, hell is real and eternal. And there are people falling off into it even as I speak. 
And you have the opportunity to leave the wide path and get on a narrow path that leads to life. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this very text. And I want to end my sermon the same way he ended his. I want to read to you what he said in this incredibly powerful sermon that he preached on Revelation 14, the, called the Prince of Preachers. I've read a lot of his stuff. An incredibly godly man, but a man who was very real. Listen to this, quote, I beseech you, do not risk that doom for yourselves. Escape for your lives. Look not behind you, but fly to the one, fly to the only refuge which God has provided. Whoever will entrust his soul to Jesus Christ will be eternally saved. Look unto him who wore the thorn crown and repose your soul's entire confidence in him. And then, in that last great day, you shall see him seated on the white cloud wearing the golden crown, and you shall be gathered. But if you reject him, do not think it wrong that you should be cast with the grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God and be trodden with the rest of the clusters of the vine of the earth. I beg you to take Christ as your Savior this very hour, lest this night you should die unsaved. Lay hold of Jesus, lest you never hear another gospel invitation or warning. If I have seemed to speak terribly, God knows that I have done it out of love to your souls. And believe me, that I do not speak as strongly as the truth might well permit me to do, for there is something far more terrible about the doom of the lost than language can ever express or thought conceive. God save all of you from ever suffering that doom. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Father in heaven, there is a wide path that leads to destruction and there are many who are on it. And one of the characteristics of that wide path that I remember distinctly when I was walking it is how easy it was to stay on that path. I remember distinctly that, that there were people who were partying and having a good time and they were indulging their flesh and life was great and grand. But I couldn't get away from that nagging feeling deep down in my soul that something wasn't right. It was only by your grace and mercy that I heard the truth. It was only by your grace and mercy that you pursued me and gave me life and put me on the narrow path. Father, the, the opportunity this morning to finally have peace is right before them. It's before every person in this room and those who are watching online. And it begins with confessing that, that we have fallen and broken your commandments. We have we have lived unrighteously, and it's no one else's fault but our own. But we believe that you died for us. We believe that you resurrected. And Father, for the one who calls out by faith, the one who turns from their wickedness and turns to you, Father, you said you will know why cast them aside. That it is not your desire that they go to a place of torment. Father, for those in the room who've put their faith in you, who've come from death and the life, Father, we have the message of freedom, a message of forgiveness, a message of hope. And yet, Father, because we're afraid of what other people might think, 
we remain quiet. So Father, how can we believe in an eternal hell yet not help people find the path that leads to hope? Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our silence. Forgive us for our complicity. Forgive us, Lord, of our silence. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.